Amen, church. Would you remain standing with me as we read the second psalm? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in this way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So I do have to imagine you've got the pattern down by now. Jesus, he spends the night in Bethany at the home of his dear friends, Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. He'll rise early the next morning, perhaps even before the sun comes up. Then he and his disciples, they'll head back into the city, back into Jerusalem. They'll spend the day there before retiring back to the east, over the Mount of Olives, back into Bethany. By the time we come to this morning's text, it's Tuesday. It remains Tuesday, Tuesday of Holy Week. Some people will tell you this is Wednesday. Well, they're confused. It's Tuesday. See, it was just three days earlier on Saturday when Jesus first arrived in Bethany. Now, we may have been in the region for much longer than that, but it was on Saturday when Mary anointed Jesus, unbeknownst to herself, preparing him for his burial. The next day was Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. It was on that day, you'll remember, when Jesus sent a couple of his disciples ahead to the town just on the other side, to Bethphage. Just as he had promised them, there was a donkey and her colt tied to the outside of a house. Under the instruction of Jesus Christ, they went and they untied that donkey. And just as he had said, the owners came out and said, what are you doing untying this donkey? Their response, just as Jesus had said, was, the Lord has need of it. So sure enough, they take the donkey, they take her colt, back up on the Mount of Olives, and there they place Jesus upon it. Now this scene of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, this didn't go unnoticed by any within the crowd. Every single one of them recognized that this signified Jesus as the promised son of David, the eternal king of Israel. So they waved palm branches and shouted a cry of victory. They laid their cloaks down on the road before him, a sign of absolute submission to this king. They shouted out with praise, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He then goes into the temple and he takes a look around. It was nighttime, so he departed from there again back to the east over the Mount of Olives and into Bethany. The next day was Monday. It was on this day when Jesus and his disciples were taking this very same path. And they looked up. There along the side of the road, there was a fig tree and leaf. All the signs of life. All the expectations of fruit. Jesus had very good reason to believe that once he got to that tree, what he would find there was some early season figs. And yet upon further inspection, he found there was something dysfunctional. 
something diseased, something broken within this fig tree. She was not fulfilling her purpose because there was no fruit. So Jesus uttered a curse over it. May no one ever eat fruit from you ever again. This is a destructive miracle. And yet what we know is it was an acted parable. The curse that Jesus Christ spoke over this fig tree, it was a curse that was spoken over apostate Israel. She too had failed to fulfill her purpose. She too bore no fruit. She was a big leafy tree. All the outward signs of life, all the evidence of religiosity. She should have fulfilled her purpose, but she didn't. And so a curse had been set over her. The day would come when Babylon would surround the great city, destroying even the temple some 40 years from this point. Jesus would continue on and go into the temple, into his father's house. The scripture tells us that he was there. He was in the outer courts, the court of Gentiles, that 35-acre span where God had invited the nations to come and worship him. But instead, what Jesus found there was an open-air market, a noisy place where people were buying and selling and trading. And so he cleaned the whole place out, chasing out those that bought and those who sold, restricting access for any that would seek to just pass through about their daily business. He cried out at them, is it not written that this place shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations and you have made my father's house a den of robbers. Jesus would then yet again depart and head back into Bethany for the night. Now we come to Tuesday. On this day, Jesus and his disciples are taking this very same route and now they look up and they see that fig tree, that tree that just 24 hours earlier had been full of life, full of leaves, and yet they realized in that moment that it had in fact begun to wither, not just at its leaves, not just at its limbs, at its roots, its very source of life. Then the moment when Jesus uttered this curse, this tree lost all sign of life. In fact, it had come under a curse. And then they continued on, on into Jerusalem, and we find ourselves in this morning's text. And now, I do pray that you haven't grown weary of us time after time recounting this week. But dear friends, I've come to the conclusion that those of us sitting in this church house, 21st century America, we have no concept of just the excitement that surrounded this entire week. Just Passover week in and of itself carried with it a certain sense of gravity, a certain sense of excitement. Historians tell us there may have been as many as two million pilgrims in that little city on that day. You imagine all the preparation for the sacrifice, the feast that's on the other side. Scripture tells us there was a great buzz in the air before Jesus even arrived. John tells us in chapter 11 of his gospel that the people were standing in the temple. They were looking for Jesus. They were asking one another, what do you think? Could Jesus really come? And then he showed up. It was much more intense than anything they could have ever imagined. I pray that you have some sense of that. So I ask you to stand to your feet, please. Reverence a reading of God's word. We return to Mark's gospel. Again, we're in chapter 11. We begin at verse 27. This is the word of God. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, what we need more than anything else in these moments 
is to see the glorious face of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we live in a dark world full of distraction and sin and illness and death. The answer to every single one of these things is found in one singular place. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise you for him. We praise you for sending him to save sinners. We praise you for the reality that salvation is found not in perfect people, but in a faithful people who will repent and turn to him. So, Father, we pray today as we study your word that you would show us his face, that we would see the reality of this gospel more clearly than ever. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. So the text began like this, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. You'll notice Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem for the shopping. He didn't come to Jerusalem to visit with friends. He came for one very specific purpose. The very same purpose he had been there on the days before. Jesus Christ came to Jerusalem to visit the temple, to go to his father's house. It was there that he was going to confront sin at its very root. Now you'll notice that there was no, there was no shortage of problems throughout the land of Israel. The Romans, they continued to mistreat the Jewish people. The tax collectors, they continued to rip off their countrymen. Robbers and thieves, they continued to roam the open roads seeking people to take advantage of. The poor, they were just as poor as ever. The weak, they were just as marginalized as ever. Adultery, robbery, prostitution, drunkenness, all these things reigned throughout all the land. There is nothing new under the sun, dear friends. Do not think that the sins of the day, that we have somehow invented these things, that we somehow have cornered the market on sin. There was plenty of sin in that day for Jesus Christ to confront. And yet what we find is that he goes straight to his father's house. That the sins there, that the broken worship there, that was his primary concern in this coming. He didn't go and rain down fire on the bars and brothels all throughout Israel. In fact, what we find is that he welcomed these people to himself. He ate with, he held hands with, he did life with. Jesus Christ welcomed any man that would turn from himself and turn to him as the only Savior sent from heaven. These very men that had been stiff-armed by the religious establishment. These very men that were told they had no place in Israel. These very men that were told they could not come and rightly worship the living God. They found in Jesus Christ a smiling face, a Savior welcoming them into his presence. And yet it was the religious folks. It was those who were deceived. It was those who paid lip service to God with all the outward religious signs and yet had hearts that knew nothing except for love of self. It was these people that Jesus Christ came to confront on this day. Now you must make no mistake, Jesus Christ hates sin. All sin is an abomination before him. All sin is an offense against the living God. All sin brings with it the wrath of hell. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, reminding us there will come a day when Jesus Christ will rid the earth of all sin, of all rebellion, of all evil. And yet even now we read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous, any who are not clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Every single sin that is committed in this world will be paid for. Do you understand? Every last ounce of rebellion that happens in this world will be paid for. It has either been paid at the cross of Jesus Christ 
or we will be paid for in all eternity on the heads of sinners as the wrath of God is poured out upon them. In the economy of God's kingdom, in the economy of this universe, there is not one sin which falls through the cracks. And yet what we find in Jesus Christ in this first coming is we find him so very merciful, so very forgiving, extending this gospel of salvation to the very most, the worst, the most vile of sinners all throughout society while looking to those that held up themselves in their own righteousness, their own self-justification, their own place within the kingdom of God that they believed they had earned, and he punches them right in the mouth. It is there at the house of God where judgment must begin. Dear friends, you've got to know this. We look around us and we see all manner of sin throughout the world. We see all manner of social injustice. And there's something within us that cries out, we want to go and attack all of this. We want to go and address all of this. We want to we want to do something in the name of God to address all the ills in this world. But dear friends, you must know that if judgment does not begin, if cleansing does not begin at the house of God, we're of no use to the rest of the world. If you do not have a heart like this, a heart which turns and trusts in Jesus Christ, which throws yourself wholly and completely upon his righteousness and nothing else, you will be of no use to all the social causes in all the world. You'll be of no use in calling men to repentance from their sin all over the world. This cleansing, this judgment, it must begin here. It must begin in the hearts, in the minds, in the lives of those that claim the name of God, those that would hold themselves up as worshipers of God. And so Jesus is there in the temple. He's passing through. I have to imagine again that he's in that outer court, the court of Gentiles, the 35-acre tract that really just spans this entire complex. So Jesus is passing through there. And Matthew tells us that not only is he walking through, but he's teaching. Luke tells us that Jesus is there not only teaching, but he's preaching the gospel. The very same message that Jesus has been proclaiming since the beginning. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. More than the signs, more than the miracles, more than the wonders, more than the healings, what these people needed more than anything else was to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That was the place of salvation. That was the purpose for his coming. The signs, the miracles, the healings, these things were driven by compassion for man, yes. Jesus Christ looked and he saw the sick and the sad and the hurting and the lonely and the scared and driven by great compassion in his heart. He did care for them. He did heal them where they stood. But ultimately, the purpose behind all these was to give evidence that he truly was the Christ, was to give assurance that his message was true. What these men needed more than legs that worked, what these men needed more than bread from heaven, what these men more needed more than to watch a dead man raised to life, what they needed more than anything else was to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, was to hear that salvation was available to any who would turn and believe in him as their only savior. That was what they needed. That was the purpose for his coming out. That was the purpose for him going throughout all of Galilee. That was the purpose for him, for him coming to Jerusalem on this day, that he could preach this gospel. Dear friends, I pray that you have seen this gospel running all throughout Mark's gospel. No matter what passage of text we have come to, I pray that in every single instance, you hear screaming out to you from the word of God, repent, believe, and be saved. It's what you need more than anything else. It doesn't matter how enthralled you are with the life story of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how much you come in this place and you feel the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how much you come in this place and you're moved by the beautiful music. Dear friends, if you do not grasp this, repent, believe, and be saved, it is all for naught. In fact, it'll only serve to store up greater judgment in the final days. Dear friends, you must repent. You must turn away from your sin. This isn't sinless perfection. Dear friends, you've got sins you don't even know about yet. You stumbled and struggled and sinned against the Almighty God in ways you are not even aware of. 
And yet if you would just turn and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, wholly and completely, you will be saved. That was the message Jesus came to preach. That was the message he was standing in his father's house and preaching. And on this one glorious day, can't you just imagine it? He's cleansed the place out. He's chased away all the buyers and all the sellers and all the traders and all the people. He's chased away all those that would seek to pass through and make this place just a place of business, an open-air market. He's cleansed it, and he comes back on this one glorious day preaching the gospel of salvation. So he's walking through, and he's preaching this news. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him. Now we hear about these various groups throughout the New Testament, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Essenes and the Zealots and the elders and the scribes and the chief priests, and they all just kind of seem to just, just like a, an amalgamation of just bad guys, right? It's just you've got Jesus Christ here, and you've got this group over here that opposes him. And that's not entirely untrue, but you do have to know that these are very distinct groups. There was a whole lot they didn't agree on, more than not, it would appear. There's a whole lot these men couldn't agree on, like the law of God. What is the law of God? Are we restricted just to that written law that was passed down through Moses or the oral traditions too? And to, to what degree is religion meant to influence the country, as large, country at large? And then for those of us that are the more devout Jews, the more religious folks, the more high-minded people, are we supposed to just pull back from society altogether? What you'll find is the arguments they had, they aren't all that dissimilar to the ones you find in the church today. And yet they did seem to find one area of common interest, their hatred of Jesus Christ. They found one thing that bound them together. At varying degrees, they all agreed Jesus Christ must be destroyed. And they knew that there was one group that could make this happen. There was one group with the ability to bring the charge against Jesus Christ and find him guilty of a crime unto death. And that group was the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation. What we find in them is the you find that the, the judicial and the legislative, even to some degree the executive branches, all rolled into one. You see, when God was speaking to Moses and helping him to see the way in which this nation was to operate, he told him that there was to be a court. There was to be a place where people could come before judges, where they could hear the law of God expressed rightly, where they could see the law of God applied properly, where they could hear the judgment about the way in which men had transgressed this law of God. And so what we find by the first century is that there's a number of these assemblies. There's a number of these groups. There's a number of these courts. The word is Sanhedrin. There's a number of Sanhedrin in most every city all throughout Israel. Now, in the smaller towns, there would have been a group of 23 religious leaders and elders that would have gathered together, and you could come and bring your case before them. But in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, what you would find is the great Sanhedrin. Whenever you hear the word just Sanhedrin in Scripture, generally, this is who they're talking about, the great Sanhedrin, made up of 70 scribes and elders and chief priests plus one plus the high priest who would sit over it so when they say that these men came before jesus the chief priests the scribes the elders this is what they're talking about they're talking about the sanhedrin now this wasn't all 71 members this was just a small delegation there's a small representative group that had come to jesus christ they weren't bringing a full inquisition he wasn't being brought before the full assembly and yet you must know that they were there on official business they weren't just casually interacting with Jesus Christ. They were coming to confront him, to seek to trap him and to confront him. And you must know that what we read this morning, this is the first of seven encounters that we're going to see between Jesus and these various groups throughout this same day. But this wasn't the first time for that either. All throughout Jesus' ministry, go all the way back to Mark 2, and what you'll find is that the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were always right there following after Jesus, sometimes lurking in the bushes like creepos, sometimes coming straight to his face, but always seeking to trap him, 
seeking to trip him up, oftentimes coming all the way up from Jerusalem into Galilee, seeking to catch him in some type of sin. And so this group, they come here. And you've got to imagine the scene that even within this temple court, even after the cleansing, surely there was a great crowd there. And all throughout the town of Jerusalem, anywhere this, these chief priests, these scribes, these elders, these members of the Sanhedrin, anywhere they went, the crowd would have parted like the Red Sea. These men carried great respect. They carried great, great authority. So we see as they come, approaching Jesus, and you've got to imagine that their disciples, they all had to collectively catch their breath in this moment because they knew. These men had already declared their desire to destroy Jesus. And Jesus had already declared to them that that's exactly the way this thing was going to play out. Three times in Mark's gospel, we know that this was an ongoing conversation. Jesus continually told his people, there is a purpose for me going up into Jerusalem. It's not just to observe this last Passover feast. The very purpose for our going is that the Son of Man, he must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, and he must be killed. So as they see this group coming, this very group that Jesus had told them about, they see this group coming. You can imagine the anxiety. They were on high alert as they see this group approaching their master. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to Jesus, verse 28. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now we aren't told what these things are. Who gave you the authority to do these things? But I have to imagine that these things means basically everything. Who gave you the authority to ride into this place like the king of Israel? Who gave you the authority to receive the praises and shouts of Hosanna from this thirsty crowd? Who gave you the right to walk through this temple complex preaching like you do? And most of all, who gave you the right to cleanse this temple? Who do you think you are and who gave you the right? By what authority do you do these things? Now this is the same question that they asked him at his first cleansing. You remember that three years ago, Jesus had come into Jerusalem for the Passover and at that first cleansing, as he did very similarly, chased them out with a whip of cords. They came to him with the same question. They phrased it a little differently. Back then the question went like this. What sign do you show us for doing these things? They demanded a sign of authority, a show. Again, who gave you the right to do these things. Clearly these men were not happy that Jesus had strolled into town and hadn't checked in with them first. It's like a bad mob movie, right? We are the ones that determine who can do what and when and how. We are the ones that determine what rabbi rises to what rank. Nothing happens in our town without our permission. Got it? This was the message that these men were sending to Jesus Christ when they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? Who told you you could act like this? It wasn't me. It wasn't any of the 71. So who told you that you could come and act in this way? You must know that we have given our entire lives to acquire this authority. And we don't know anything about you. Show us your credentials. Who did you study under? Was it Gamaliel? I don't think so. Hillel? Shammai? Which of the great rabbis can you point to as your teacher? Show us. Show us your papers. Show us your credentials. Show us evidence that you have the authority to come and act in this way. By what authority do you do these things? You've got to know that it burned these dudes up. These dudes were consumed with their authority. They were consumed with their power. They had literally dedicated their entire lives to playing all the games, the political games of building a crowd, of building a popularity, of building a name for themselves. All the study, all the hard work, all the political shenanery. Is that really a word? Shenanery? Shenanigans. Shenanery is a good word, though. Trademark. All, they're just wrapped up in this, man. Just building a name for themselves. And then this man, 
Jesus from Nazareth of all places. He comes rolling in and he acts with authority, does things the likes of which they have never seen and never been able to replicate. He builds crowds like they would have killed to have had. Can you imagine these men standing and preaching to 5,000 men plus women and children? And yet at the end of this thing, what does Jesus do? He says really hard things and he chases them all out. He's consistently culling this crowd down to just the faithful few. He seems to have no care for the popularity. Just about the time that all the crowds are coming and he's healing people by the droves, what does he do? He goes away and spends time with his father. He seems to could care less about the things that these men had dedicated their lives to building. So who do you think you are, Jesus, to come and act in this way? And this wasn't the first time they had seen his authority on display. That authority which had always been his as the son of God, they had seen this authority peeking through manifesting itself all throughout his earthly ministry. We read about it back in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 21 through 22. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Ouch. He didn't teach like you guys. He didn't teach like the other rabbis. He didn't teach like the scribes. See, they, all they could do is point to somebody else. They had a bunch of footnotes underneath everything they said pointing to some other rabbi, pointing to some other authority, pointing to some other teacher that had said these things. That's all they could ever do was piggyback onto somebody else's work. They couldn't speak as one with absolute authority. They could only point to some great rabbi that had gone before that had gained the respect of the people. That was the way that they built their authority. They didn't have authority. Exousia is the word. Ex means out of or out from. Usia means substance or nature or being. These men couldn't speak out of their substance. They couldn't speak out of their being. They had no authority in themselves. It was only Jesus Christ. Only he amongst all men on the earth. You must know that even in the Old Testament, as we see God speaking through the prophets, more than 400 times, what we see the prophets begin their statements with is, thus saith the Lord. These words spoken through these prophets, they were authoritative. They carried great authority and, re and they required of them absolute submission. And yet it wasn't because of anything within them. It was because of the one that spoke through them. They were merely the messengers. It was only Jesus Christ that in himself, in his substance, in his nature, in his being, as the very son of God, carried absolute authority. This is why he could begin his statements with amen. I get up here and I preach. I give my all. I sweat. I mean, I sweat. I sweat and I study and I labor and I shout and I do cartwheels and all this, just hoping at the end of it somebody's going to shout amen. Jesus Christ doesn't wait. He begins his statement by saying amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, what I say to you is true because of who I am. I don't need the authority of another. I don't need pats on the back. I don't need y'all to shout amen. I am the son of the most high God, and everything I say carries with it absolute authority, demanding absolute submission. He wasn't like them. Not only this, he showed authority even over creation. We remember the story of Jesus there on the boat in the Sea of Galilee, and he's asleep. He's tuckered out from a long day of ministry. He's asleep there in the boat, and there's a great storm that has come in, and the men are terrified. The boat is taking on water, and they're convinced that surely they're about to die. And so they wake Jesus up, and of course, he confronts them with their lack of faith. And yet, then with just a word, peace, be still. The water's like glass. Dear friends, is there anything less controllable in this world than a storm, than water, being out on the open sea? And yet, with just a word, Jesus Christ shows his absolute authority over all creation. The men were amazed, and of course their response is, what kind of man is this that even wind and sea obey him? 
that for many of them was that first moment when they recognized this guy isn't like other guys. This is not an ordinary rabbi that we follow after. He commands and the sea obeys because in him, in his essence, in his nature, in his being is something unlike anyone else in all the earth. He exhibited his absolute control over creation and over the demons. Even the spirits of darkness, they must obey when Jesus Christ commands. We see as Jesus Christ would come into a room or he would go into a, go into a graveyard and he would find there, he would find there man that had been oppressed, possessed by spirits, by unclean spirits, by demons, and they would fall down and cry out, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, we know who you are. You are the son of the most high God. If you come to torment us before the time, we adjure you, we beg you by the name of God, do not destroy us. And then with just a word, they were forced to flee. They were forced to run away. And the people seeing this, they were all, of course, amazed. What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands and not only do the wind and waves obey, he commands and even the demons obey. They must flee. They must do whatever he says. What kind of man is this? He's the only man, the God-man, the son of the most high God, that in him is the authority to command all things, even the spirits of darkness, even those unclean spirits that would oppress men, unlike anything they had ever seen. These men were used to powerful teachers. They were used, with, used with, to, to standing before men that preached the word of God and claimed for themselves great authority. They were used to exorcists going throughout the land, men with good intentions, truly seeking to help those that have been oppressed by demons, and yet they had nothing in themselves to command the demons. Sure, perhaps God could work through them. Sure, perhaps God could answer their prayers and heal the one standing before them, but ultimately it was only Jesus that could bring forth from within himself the authority to command all things in creation. They had never seen anything like this, but most troubling to them, more troubling than the healings, more troubling than the storm, more troubling than the demons, more troubling than the teaching, was the fact that he proved that he had the ability to forgive sins, not just the ability, not just the power, the authority to forgive sins. You'll remember this as Jesus was in Peter's house. He was there and the crowd had grown great. The crowd was so massive that nobody could even get into the house. But there was a paralyzed man and his friends had great love for him and they desired to get him before Jesus Christ and so they carried the man there. They went up onto the rooftop. I don't know what that looked like. I'm imagining there must have been some kind of stairs, but maybe not. They climbed up onto the rooftop, and then they began to remove roof tiles and to dig down through it. Luke tells us that they were looking around, trying to figure out where Jesus was exactly. They were gonna make sure they were gonna lower him down right in front of Jesus Christ. So they take the four corners of this man's blanket. Maybe they tied a rope to it. They lower him down right before Jesus Christ. And Mark tells us in the second chapter of his gospel that Jesus, seeing their face, says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. The men were outraged. Who has the right to forgive sins but God alone? Now you're getting it. Finally, you're catching on. Who has the right to forgive sins but God alone? Nobody. You finally figured it out. It is only I. Only I have the one. Only I have the authority. Only I am the one that is sent to forgive sins. I am God. So he says this thing, and he can perceive the men's hearts, their thoughts, he knows what they're thinking. They're wondering to themselves, this man is blaspheming. How can he say this thing? No one can forgive sins but God alone. And so then he speaks to them. He says, oh, you thought that was tough, right? You would rather see me cause the man to stand up and walk. Because you see, to forgive sins, that's an invisible thing. You can't see that. So you want me to prove to you that I do have the authority to forgive sins? Now I say to you, stand up, take up your mat, and walk. The man gets up just as Jesus has said. Proof not only that he has the ability to heal, that he has the ability the authority, the right 
to forgive sins because of who he is, because he is God. And yet now what we find with Jesus is he's not in the backwaters areas of Galilee. He's not in the country of Perea beyond the Jordan. He's standing right here on their turf, in their ter- territory. The week of the Passover, standing in the temple complex, exhibiting this very same kind of authority. And the crowds are growing. There's just a throng of people surrounding him. And these men, they can't allow something like this to stand. And so they ask him, who gives you the authority? Who gave you the authority to preach like this? Who gave you the authority to pronounce a curse upon apostate Israel? Who gave you the authority to cleanse the temple? Who gave you the authority to preach this gospel that confronts every last thing that we have spent our entire lives building? By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Verse 29, and Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So we've seen this all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, haven't we? These men, they come and they ask Jesus a question, not because they want answers, not because they recognize who he is and they seek to know God better, not because they want to learn more information to go and take it to those who they say they lead. Ultimately, they want to ask a question of Jesus Christ to trip him up. They want to trap him. They want to be able to accuse him of sin. So they'll ask him questions like, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like the others? Or they'll ask him, you know, Jesus, is it legal to divorce your wife for any reason? They'll say, Jesus, is it legal for you to pay taxes to Caesar? They'll say, Jesus, if a woman is widowed seven times by seven brothers, whenever that woman comes into the resurrection, which man will she be married to? They stop one step short of saying, Jesus, can God create a rock that's too big for, rock for God to pick up? It's games. It's shenanigans. They're not sincere in their hopes. They don't want to know God more clearly. They're setting a trap for him. And boy, they think they've really got something here. They really think they've got him. By what authority do you do these things? Because here's the thing. If Jesus says to these men, my authority comes from man, or I have no authority at all, then men will stop following after him. He's, he's no different than the scribes and the Pharisees at that point, right? He's no different than an ordinary rabbi minus the ordinary credentials. He's just proving them right, and the crowd dissipates and goes away. But if he says that his authority has come from God, or that his authority is found in himself as God, then they've got him for open blasphemy, and they're going to be able to call for his death. They believe that either way, they win. They believe that either way, they've got him trapped. They really think they've done something. I'm picturing the smirk on their face as they ask Jesus, Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Mic drop, dab, checkmate, gotcha. Yeah, they're lame. They still dab. They thought they've done it, man. Like they're sitting over there, oh, we got him. But Jesus almost never answers questions straight on with these guys. What you'll find throughout Mark's gospel is that when it comes to the insiders, when it comes to those that trust in Jesus Christ that he has called to himself, when it comes to those that sit at his feet and do what he says, he speaks to them very plainly, calling them aside and speaking to them in ways that they can understand very clearly. For the outsiders, for the crowd at general, for those that were just looky-loos, they're, gen- they're, they're curious about who Jesus is, perhaps they're wanting some kind of earthly blessing from him, he'll speak to them in parables. But for those that have decided they're going to destroy him, he answers their question with a question. This is a common rabbinic tactic, to answer their question with a question. He says to them, verse 29, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man, answer me. That last line, man. You see the authority just in the way he asks this question. You don't ask the questions here. I ask the questions. Answer me. 
I took out, I, I wrote about 1,500 words. I, I do think I need to just say a word about this. I, I took out about 1,500 words that I'd written in this sermon about the issue of authority. I'm afraid that there are some people that look to Jesus Christ and they're enthralled with what he did just because they see in him a man that hates authority. I'm afraid that there's a lot of us that don't want to recognize any authority except ourself. Many people that forget that God has said very plainly that there is no earthly authority that's been placed over you except that which God has placed. And that to rebel against your earthly authorities is to rebel against God who has placed them there. So I'm afraid that there's some of us that we see in Jesus Christ just like a rebel without a cause kind of guy. We just love the idea of the authorities getting punched in the mouth. Dear friends, that's not the message of Jesus Christ. It was these men who claimed false authority for themselves. You must know that there are all manner of earthly authorities that God has entrusted you to and that you are to respect and honor and obey them as unto God. Children, this means your parents. You're not like Jesus when you disregard your parents. This means the people that you work for. This means the policeman that pulls you over. This means kings and presidents and governors and mayors and all manner of authorities that God has allowed in your life. You don't look like Jesus Christ when you spit in their face. You don't look like Jesus Christ when you rebel. Jesus Christ was confronting a very specific issue here. These men that claimed authority for themselves that they did not have. These men that took whatever authority they did have and twisted it for their own selfish gain. Dear friends, we don't get to run around and say that I submit to God and therefore I submit to no one else. That's not the way of the kingdom. There will come a time when I'm going to stand before you and I need you to know this. There's going to come a time when I stand before you as the church of God and I'm going to tell you today's the day we fight. There will come a day when this authority will overextend itself and it will call us to do things that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that day is getting closer than ever. But I will not be the little boy that cries wolf and every time the government or every time some official does something I don't like, I come running here and cry foul and ask you to rebel. I'm going to tell you that you're to submit to earthly authorities as unto God until the moment comes that we don't. When that moment comes, when they cross the line and they offend the living God, they call us to do things that are an offense to the living God, that will be the day that I call you to come into this place and die. But this isn't what Jesus was doing. So he asked them, I will ask the question and you will answer me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, at first glance, this seems like an odd response, right? Like a non sequitur. Like, what, what are you talking about, okay? We're asking about you and your authority, and you go to talking about John and his baptism. Is he just playing games? Is he just trying to distract them? Is he just trying to move the ball? What is he doing? But upon closer inspection, what you'll find is that Jesus is making sure that these men are going to answer their own question. Think about it. He says, what about John? Now, who is John? This is John the Baptist, right? This is the one that is known by baptism. Baptism was kind of the, the sign, the big issue within his ministry. Obviously, we call him John the Baptist. His last name wasn't the Baptist. John the Baptist, he's known as the one that baptizes. Of course, he didn't invent baptism. We talked about this at the beginning of our study of Mark, that within the Jewish custom, it was quite common for men to come for ceremonial cleansings, for submersion into water. But John's baptism, it had something more than this. It was more than just an external cleansing. It was more than just an outward ordinance. It was more than just a tradition. John's baptism was a call for something deeper within, an internal cleansing. That's why we read that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was calling men to repent. Turn from your sin and turn from God and show that outwardly by undergoing this 
baptism. That was the whole purpose. Men were coming to John that he would baptize them that God might cleanse their hearts. Not that there was magic in the waters of the Jordan. Not that there was magic in the ordinance. But that it showed a heart which desired to be right with God. A heart of repentance. This is what he was calling people to. And John was a bit of a wild man. We know this about him. He wore camel hair. He ate locusts and, and wild honey. He was not afraid to confront sin, going after King Herod for taking his brother's wife, greeting the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they came out to see what all the fuss was about by calling them a brood of vipers, punching these very same men that are now confronting Jesus, punching them right square in the mouth. John was not afraid of conflict. John was going to speak up on account of the kingdom of God. But more important than all of this was his role as a forerunner. He was the one that God had sent to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. We read about this in the first chapter of Luke's gospel. Is his father, Zechariah the priest. He goes into the temple, and it is there that he's confronted by the angel Gabriel. And what he tells him is, do not worry. God has heard your prayers, and he's going to answer them. I'm going to send you a son, and he's to be pure, because within his mother's womb, he is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He is going to go and prepare a people for God, prepare the path for the one that is coming in the name of God. He is going to be great before the eyes of men as he prepares the way. He is the forerunner. He is the harbinger. He's the one going before the promised Messiah that is to come. This was his ultimate role. And his people came to John out there in the wilderness, and he built a massive crowd for himself. His people came to John seeking to hear his teaching and seeking to undergo this baptism. He was constantly pointing to another. He must increase, but I must decrease. Yes, listen to my words, but you must look for the one that is to come. I am not the Christ, but the Christ will come. I'm just preparing the way for one. I baptize with water. He will baptize in the Spirit. I'm not even fit to untie a sandal. Yes, you need to look to me. Yes, you need to listen to me. But ultimately, you need watching for the one that is coming, the one who's been promised from days of old. And then on that day as he shows up, John 1 talks about this. That day as he comes through and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He also goes on to say that God has said to me, the one that has sent me out here in the wilderness to baptize, he has said that the one on whom the Holy Spirit descends and remains, he is the one. And therefore, I stand before you today proclaiming that he is the Son of God. That's the whole purpose to John's ministry. John's ministry wasn't just about baptism. John's ministry wasn't just about preaching. It was about preparing and pointing people towards the Son of God, the very Lamb that comes to take away the sins of the world. That was the entire purpose. And so when Jesus asked these men, they asked him about his authority. He points them to John, to John's baptism, to his entire ministry. He's asking them then, what about this? Not just submersion in the Jordan. What about his claims? What about his ministry? What about his testimony that I am the Lamb of God, that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah? Was this message from heaven or from man? Now, Jesus was speaking to these Jewish people on their terms. They were afraid to utter the name of God. They were worried about blaspheming him or perhaps saying his name wrongly. And so oftentimes they would refer to the abode of God. They would refer to heaven in place of God. So he's asking them, John's baptism, his ministry, his testimony about me, what do you say? Does this come from God or does it come from man? See, the religious leaders, they were going to answer their own question because John points to Jesus. They had two options here. They could say that, in in fact, that John's testimony, that John's ministry, that John's message, that John's baptism, that it had come from heaven, that it had come from God. And then, obviously, that meant that its testimony was true and that Jesus was the Christ, or they could say that it, had come from, that it had come from men. If that was the case, then John was a liar and Jesus was a fraud. You see, you can't have John without Jesus. You can't have Jesus without John. 
That's why we read, and Jesus says in John 5, 31 through 33, if I bear witness about myself, my my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. John is one going, along with God, bearing testimony that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the son of the most high God. And so now he's forcing the Sanhedrin. They're going to answer their own question. These poor dudes, they're like Charlie Brown. Every time the football's out there, they think they've got it squared up. They're fixing to kick it. Boom, it gets whipped out from under them. Every single time. They keep coming back. They're gluttons for punishment, apparently. But they keep coming back time and time and time again, thinking they got Jesus in a corner, and then just with a word, he completely destroys their argument. An absolute mess. This throng of people all standing around now, their attention no longer focused on Jesus, but focused on these men who had come to confront him. Now they must answer the question. Verse 31. And they discussed it with one another. So they get in this little huddle, right? They don't know the answer right off the bat. They get in this little huddle, and they're discussing, this isn't going the way we planned. So they gather together, and they discussed with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? This is true. These dudes are telling the truth. Look, these dudes were sinful. They were hard-hearted. They did not love God. They were not honoring him. But they weren't stupid. They knew exactly what would happen. If they said that surely John and his ministry, his baptism, his testimony about Jesus had come from God, then Jesus' response was going to be, then why didn't you believe him? Why did you hate him? Why did you despise him? And why don't you believe in me as the son of God? That was the truth. They had no win there. There was no way that they could say something like this. Their whole case would be undone if they said that John's baptism had come from heaven. Verse 32, but if we say from man, it's almost as if they bite it off. If we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. Luke tells us that they were afraid because they believed that the people would stone them. For 400 years, the people had waited for a word from God. Then the last of the Old Testament prophets, one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, he comes. Finally, a word from God after four centuries of nothing. People were on fire for this message that John preached. People had been coming out to him, disciples by the droves. These people truly believed that John was a prophet from God. And these men knew that if we speak against John, if we say that his ministry was only from men, then these men are going to destroy us. So what do we do? So the scribes, the elders, they're, they're, they're in a bad spot. But I do want you to take note of something. What they don't do whenever they get into their unholy huddle over here, what they don't do is ask, what do you think? Was he really from God or was he from man? The question of truth was never on the table. The question of whether or not the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus Christ, that was never up for debate. The question was, what is the most expedient answer that we can give? These men didn't care about the truth. These men didn't care about knowing the truth about God, didn't care about knowing the truth about Christ, didn't care about knowing the truth about John the Baptist. What they cared about was what is the least damaging answer we can give in this moment. They never came to Jesus seeking the truth. They never came to Jesus with any self-reflection. They never came to Jesus with any thought that they themselves might be deceived. For if they had, they would have seen the truth. They would have known the truth. But instead, they're trying to figure out what answer can we give to get out of this place alive, holding on to as much power as possible? What answer can we give to hold on to our reputations and make sure this mob doesn't turn on us and destroy us? For if they'd come to Jesus with a pure heart, with a sincere desire to know the truth, they would have. These were the learned men. These men knew the word of God. These men knew all the signs and the prophets and the sacrifices, everything that had been pointing towards this day, towards this place, and yet they wouldn't do it. They had one concern and one concern only, themselves. How could they hold on to their reputation? How could they hold on to their power? How could they escape this place with their hides? 
And you know, I, I try to be as charitable as possible with these guys. I have. All throughout our study, I've tried to be as charitable as possible because I understand, number one, that apart from the supernatural working of God, no man could come to faith. I know in addition to that, these men had just a heap of history and some really bad theology they were going to have to overcome to rightly see Jesus. And yet, dear friends, you must know that these men were chasing after exactly what their hearts cherished, and they were turning against that which their hearts despised. They hated Jesus Christ, and they loved themselves. They truly, deep down in their hearts, no one forced them into this. They truly hated Jesus Christ and everything that he came to preach. They sought his destruction. Their hearts delighted in the thought that they could finally bring the end to pass on him. And this is where hardened hearts lead us. Dear friends, you must know this. This is where hardened hearts lead us, especially those of us that would count ourselves as leaders. You see, these men, they were only as powerful. They only had as much authority as the crowd around them would give them, as much as they were willing to submit. And so they had dedicated themselves to building a crowd, to building a name, to building a reputation, to making sure that people followed after them. God wasn't their primary concern. God's law, it was not their primary concern. Their only concern, again, was building a name for themselves. The word of God, it was just a tool. It was just a thing that they could use to build up a name for themselves before men, to get invited to all the best parties, to make sure that people all waved at them and shouted hooray as they walked down the street. They studied the scriptures not because they desperately sought to see Jesus or see God revealed there in the Holy Scriptures. They studied the scriptures not because they desperately desired to teach people the truth about who God was. They went to the scriptures because they believed in that they could build a powerful name for themselves. That was the whole purpose in this. And dear friends, this is terrifying. Terrifying for a pastor for sure. But it should be terrifying for every single one of you. Any one of you that would come to the scriptures, any one of you that would call on the name of God, any one of you that count yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, you must know that there's great temptation. You must know that these men, they came, most of them with a pure heart in the beginning, truly believing that they were gonna follow after God and honor his commandments. And yet in the end, what they found as they received the applause of man, it can become addicting. You fall in love with becoming the guy that knows stuff, the guy that has the answers about God. And before long, what you find is that the word of God is nothing more than a commodity. It's a thing to be traded, a subject to be mastered, a thing to hold over the heads of other people, a thing to garner the applause of men. You've completely missed sight of all of it. And I, I told you to memorize a verse last week. Do you remember what that was? Proverbs 19.2. Zeal without knowledge is not good. This is true. Zeal without knowledge, desire without knowledge, passion, passion without knowledge, just empty emotionalism. That leads to absolute damnation in the end. If your zeal, if your heart, if your desire is not driven by the knowledge of God revealed in his holy scriptures, you're walking on very thin ice. You're heading a very dangerous direction. That's why we study the scriptures so fervently, desperately wanting to see Jesus Christ and the true God there. But you must also know there's warnings all throughout scripture about the reality that knowledge puffs up. We're always in danger of the ditch that is on the other side. On this one side, there are those people that say it's too hard to study the scriptures. That's for learned men. That's for scholars, that's for pastors. I'm not gonna spend my time studying the word and trying to gain knowledge about who this God is, but on the other side, there's a ditch of puffed up knowledge. We must take great care that we do not allow that which God has revealed to us. We must remember that anything you know about God, you know not only because he has revealed it to you, because he has given you eyes to see and a heart to believe that which he has said. You only understand the things you understand about God because God has led you to understand them, and there's no room for arrogance there, there's no room for pride there, there's no room for selfishness there, there's no room to beat your brother about the head and neck with that knowledge which God has revealed to you. And the moment that you allow yourself to begin to think in those terms, you have lost it. And dear friends, one of the absolute surest signs that you have fallen for this very same trap is when you find yourself coming to scripture seeking vindication rather than truth. 
when you find yourself desiring to be proven right more than personal holiness. When you find yourself reading into the scriptures and seeking exoneration rather than confrontation and absolute life change as a result of your encounter with the living God. When you use the scripture as a proof text for your life. Dear friends, you're walking on very thin ice. But that's where these men had found themselves. And ooh, I'm running out of time. And so they were stuck, right? They're stuck. They're, they're blinded by their pride. And yet fear has driven them where they can't confess what they really want to say. And so they respond to Jesus, verse 33. They answered him, we do not know. Cowards and liars, the lot of them. They knew exactly what they believed. They had rejected John. Scripture tells us that John came and he didn't eat and he didn't drink and they said he had a demon. Jesus came and he ate and he drank and they said that he was a glutton and a drunkard. They knew exactly what they believed about John. They believed John had a demon. They knew exactly what they believed about Jesus. They believed that he was a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of sinners, and a blasphemer to boot. They knew exactly what they believed and yet driven by love for themselves and desire to hold on to their power, they said those words they did not want to say. We don't know. You're the dudes that get paid to know and you're now standing in his face confessing that you don't know because you have confronted the wrong one. Instead of confronting yourself, instead of allowing the word of God to transform you, you have confronted the very son of God that comes to offer salvation. Dear friends, I think I'll end with this. These men, they completely missed the reality of who Jesus Christ was because the eternal son of God, the one in whom all authority rested, he had come and taken upon himself humanity. We read throughout scripture that the father gives to the son all things. We read standing there on the mountain, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And we could be tempted to ask, well, how is things given to Jesus that were always his? As the eternal son of God did not all authority always rest with him. Here's what happens is Jesus Christ, as he condescends in his humiliation, as he comes to earth and he takes upon himself humanity, there is now Jesus Christ, the God man from all eternity, the son of God, the second member of the Trinity has always existed. And yet in his coming, now the God man has come. Humanity joined together with divinity for all eternity. And that was God's plan from the beginning. That was the text that David read to us out of Psalm 2. That's the promise spoken through Daniel in Daniel 7, that the Son of Man will come. He will receive a kingdom without end, dominion everlasting, a name above every other name. God's plan was always for the God-man, Jesus Christ, to come and offer salvation to the world and for all the world to be placed under his feet. That was always his plan. And yet in his coming, because he stood there veiled in human flesh, they could not see the authority, just glimpses of the authority and the power that had always been his. And yet at that moment as he stood upon that mountain having vanquished death and Satan and sin and hell for all time as the father said to him I'm calling you now to heaven where you will be seated at my right hand all things placed under your feet dear friends you must understand this while there is a time there is a place there is a world in which God allows men to spurn his name God allows men to spit at the thought of his authority and his power. Dear friends, you must know that we don't wait for Jesus Christ to return, that someday he may reign. Jesus Christ reigns today. There is not one single thing that happens in this entire universe apart from the authoritative hand of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And I pray that you see, number one, the way in which that must affect the way you approach his holy word. You must approach this word as carrying absolute authority. Anything Jesus Christ says in his word, I shall do. Number two, you must see the bravery that this puts within your heart. You shall fear nothing in this lifetime. 
not kings, not powers, not emperors, not death, not sins of men. None of these things have any power outside the authority of Jesus Christ, and therefore we can trust him at his promise that he is working all things for our good, for his glory. We can trust him that as we go forward carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ out into this dark land, that we know because we go in the authority of Jesus Christ, we know because he has all authority, that he is truly saving men out of darkness into light in the midst of our brokenness and our sin and our weakness and our frailty. That's the promise of the authority that we see glimpses of in Jesus Christ as he stands there in Jerusalem in that temple, but that glory which we know, that authority which we know he possesses even now as he reigns over all the earth. I think that's it. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that even now, even as we don't see Jesus Christ physically in his full glory, as he truly is, Father, that you have given us eyes to see, spiritual eyes of faith that have allowed us to receive, to believe, to witness the glory, the power, the authority that is Jesus Christ that has been his for all eternity. Father, help us to submit to this authority. Help us to live in light of this authority. Help us to cast aside any fears or any doubts that come in the light of the earthly authorities that seem to so abuse all that they have. Father, help us to keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds fixed on that one that is above every other, the name above every other name, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign one of all the universe, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.